From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, a whistleblower speaks, an Olympic doctor who says he was fired from his job in Colorado Springs for sounding the alarm about the mistreatment of athletes, including sexual abuse. Then, Marine veteran Evan Stratton of Denver kept a video diary of his trip, but a repeated sound drowned him out. Getting some pretty big wind today, big waves, so we're moving at like four and a half knots. The sound of his team as they rode and rode across the Atlantic, 3,000 miles, 50 days, to raise awareness of veterans' mental health. Also, it turns out not everyone reviles daylight saving time, what you told us about it after we answered a Colorado Wonders question. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A high-ranking member of the U.S. Olympic Committee says he was fired for raising concerns about how the organization treats athletes, specifically when it comes to sexual abuse and mental health. Dr. Bill Morrow was vice president of sports medicine until he was fired last May. He just recently filed a whistleblower retaliation lawsuit. The U.S. Olympic Committee is based in Colorado Springs, of course. And, Doctor, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. When you filed this suit, you issued a statement that the time has come to shine a light on the USOC's long practice of prioritizing medals and money over the rights and well-being of athletes. What's an example you saw firsthand? Well, there's many examples, but the first one that comes to my mind is we know there's a tsunami of mental health problems for all of people in the United States. And when you think of the pressures placed upon Olympic and Paralympic athletes, it's not surprising that they suffer from the same problems as everybody else in society. It's not covered by their health insurance. And uh, I asked for $100,000 for a fund so that we could take care of co-pays and whatever the athletes needed to get their illnesses taken care of. Uh, the USOC makes $50 million a year. When I asked them for 100000 to take care of mental health, they basically, well, they just told me, go out and raise it myself. They wouldn't fund it. Another strong example is when the internal USOC vice president that manages athlete safety uh, was completely overworked, unable to manage the caseload, and she went to the chief financial officer and said, hey, I need more money. I need more people so that I can manage the load of complaints about abuse that are coming in. And she was simply told that she needs to focus more. It's just ridiculous. You don't believe that the committee is making the investments it needs to in athletes' well-being. What do you think the result is for the athletes? Well, they're suffering. They're being hurt. In some cases, they're actually dying if they have suicidal ideation. The USOC, USOPC, is it's not a mental health institution. It needs to rely upon existing experts to manage these very important issues, and they're failing miserably. I want to say that your lawsuit comes as the U.S. Olympic Committee faces an ongoing Department of Justice investigation and a congressional review over how it handled sexual abuse allegations that go back decades Uh, You are seeking unspecified compensation for wrongful discharge, but also hope to send a message with this suit. Uh, The USSC, meanwhile, did not respond to our requests for an interview, but they 
released a statement. It says, We regret that Dr. Morrow and his attorney have misrepresented the causes of his separation. We will honor their decision to see this matter through in the courts, and we won't comment on the specifics as that goes forward. Uh, Reading between the lines, Doctor, it seems like they think there were other reasons you were let go. So let me just ask, were, were you good at your job? Well, I was excellent at my job. I don't mean to seem arrogant, but I served for 10 years at the USOPC. I never received uh, an average rating. I was always ranked as exceeds expectation or outstanding. In fact, uh, in March, before they fired me, Sarah Hirschland herself signed a certificate recognizing me for outstanding work performance and behaviors. I built a $50 million national medical network. We had 350,000 patient encounters without a single med mal claim. The services at the games were ranked with a 97% satisfaction by the NGBs and athletes. It's really ridiculous. Sarah Hirschland, the chief executive officer. Uh, In 2016, dozens of women came forward with accusations of molestation against former gymnastics team doctor Larry Nasser. Uh, Before that, at the London Olympics in 2012, you say that you told Dr. Nasser he should not meet with female athletes privately, but in a communal space. Did you have suspicions then that abuse was taking place? I did not have any suspicions that this was going on, actually. And uh, I hope the listeners understand that I'm a doctor of chiropractic. I take care of people. It's just simply a standard of practice that a healthcare provider should not have an encounter with someone of the opposite sex in a closed room where it's not observable. In other words, I was saying he needed to have a chaperone to help protect him. Little did I know that he was sexually abusing those individuals. It's just terrifically horrible. For years after the 2012 warning you sent, you continued to sound alarms uh, internally. According to your lawsuit, the USOC not only failed to protect athletes from sexual assault, but failed to address mental health crises. You, I think, called it a tsunami of mental health issues. Uh, You fault them for not keeping appropriate medical records. When did it become clear that the changes you were pushing for simply would not be made? And and how long did you... uh, between sort of that point and your firing? Well, really, uh, the thing that really was the aha moment was the total disregard of the USOPC to the really impressive uh, and in-depth investigation by Ropes and Gray. I was a part of that investigation providing testimony, and there were clear, good, valid criticisms of how the business could be done better to protect the health and welfare of the athletes. I was actually excited and optimistic that we could create change to make a better environment for athletes. And when I attempted to advance my recommendations based upon the report, no one would hear it. I even had additional vice presidents at the USOC tried trying to get an audience so that I could speak to the decision makers and they wouldn't take an appointment. They didn't wanna see the document. They really didn't want to get better. It seems to me that the Ropes and Gray report from the USOPC perspective is nothing more than a publicity stunt to make it look like they're doing something. But let me, let me just say, for, the... for listeners' sake, the Ropes and Gray was a law firm, independent investigation, and uh, this was uh, called for after the revelations of Dr. Nasser's abuse. But continue, Doctor. Well, it was an excellent report. 
their attorneys, they looked at this and had solid recommendations. And if you look at the plethora of recommendations that they made, the USOPC has not been compliant in taking an act. This is over. This is two years ago or more. And when you look at what's happening, what the USOPC is doing is they're just simply building bureaucracy. They're not taking meaningful action. And when people are being sexually abused and their lives are on the line, you cannot move at a glacial pace. Immediate and rapid change is absolutely necessary to protect these athletes. Meanwhile, this 18-month U.S. Senate investigation described alarming and dysfunctional systems that allowed emotional, physical, and sexual abuse to persist in sports like gymnastics and swimming. Uh, After Dr. Nasser's victims came forward, 160 women altogether, uh, the Senate investigation found that The USOC knowingly concealed the sexual abuse. And I think, as you know, Senators Jerry Moran, Republican from Kansas, and Richard Blumenthal, Democrat from Connecticut, introduced a bill to hold the USOC and national sports governing bodies to stricter legal accountability. Do you think a bill like that, if it passed, would make a difference? That bill needs to be passed. Congress built the USOC and its guiding principles are to provide an environment for athletes that's safe from physical, emotional, sexual abuse. It doesn't say go out and win the most medals. It says protect these people. And the USOPC is completely crosswise with what they're really supposed to be doing. Those types of changes should absolutely be supported, bipartisan support, citizen-driven, and it's simply a start. That won't be enough to get it done. Doctor, we have about 30 seconds. How has this been for you personally? I know that you landed a job in Oregon. Your your family has stayed behind in Colorado Springs, just briefly. Um, It's been incredibly difficult. The USOPC has tens of millions of dollars, multiple law firms that are nationwide people. I've got myself, my family, my attorney, and I just feel like I have to speak up because I don't want to live the rest of my life knowing... I didn't do everything I could when the next minor or adult suffers sexual or physical abuse or the next athlete takes their life because they didn't have an opportunity to get help. I have to do everything I can. Dr. Bill Moreau says he was fired by the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, that's the USOPC, after raising concerns about the treatment of athletes. He has filed what's been characterized as a whistleblower lawsuit against the USOPC. Again, they declined an interview but issued that statement I read earlier. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In less than a month, we spring forward, turning our clocks an hour ahead to capture more sunlight in the evening. Why do we still do this? That's what listener Jeff Carpenter asked through Colorado Wonders. CPR's Andrew Kenny has the answer. To be specific, Jeff wanted to know why the state legislature hasn't freed Colorado from the tyranny of changing its clocks. First of all, they've tried many times. We call it brophy time around here for a reason. That's former state senator Greg Brophy speaking at the Capitol last week. 
And I have been seeking to keep the state of Colorado on permanent daylight savings time for a decade. It started for him with a simple gripe back in 2011. The man was tired. I don't really mind the fall change, but gosh, I hate the change in the spring. It hurts so much. In the springtime, 6 a.m. becomes 7 a.m. Brophy hated that disorienting feeling from losing an hour of sleep. So he got on Facebook to complain. And that post on Facebook drew more comments than anything else I'd ever posted about, ever. That post would launch Brophy on a time crusade, one that would put him up against a century of precedent. Here's Scott Yates, a self-described time nerd from Denver. He says the idea of changing clocks started spreading in World War I and really got cemented in the U.S. in the 1960s. What they thought they were doing was extending the amount of sunlight that was available after work in the summer, and that point of view was pushed especially hard by golf lobbyists who wanted more time for people to play golf. Yates is the head of the Lock the Clock movement. He doesn't really care when the sun rises and sets. He just wants the clock to stop jumping around. What they didn't really you know, account for was the switching itself being deadly. Studies have found increases in car crashes, heart attacks, and depression, all linked to time changes. And as then-Senator Greg Brophy learned from his Facebook post in 2011, a lot of people just hate it. So he introduced a bill in the state legislature. But I had no help. You know, normally in this building, there are interest groups that come in and work on issues for you or, or whatnot. And, and I had nothing. It was just all organic. The bill did okay, but eventually it lost by one vote in a committee. Brophy says special interests killed his bill. So who was it? Alarm clock makers? The caffeine lobby? The rule followers of America? No. He blames these guys. Uh, we're a trade association that represents 22 ski areas across Colorado. That was Chris Linsmeyer of Colorado Ski Country USA in a more recent debate. He said that permanent daylight saving time would force ski resorts to open later in the day since the sun would rise later. That would hamper the ability of our ski areas to get their operations up fully and running, disappointing morning guests and causing the loss of up to an hour from the business day that ski areas are unlikely to make up in the evening. The ski industry also opposes the alternative option, locking in standard time, which they say would hurt evening activities in the summer tourism season. So lawmakers have pushed a half dozen clock locking bills over the last decade, and the ski industry has fought each one. We remain opposed to House Bill 1074 and any efforts to alter our timekeeping scheme here in Colorado. Other industries also worry about disrupted schedules. Truckers, hotels, movie makers, and the tourism industry all have lobbied on these bills. But lawmakers keep trying. This year's Sisyphus, pushing the legislative rock up the ski hill, Senate Minority Whip Ray Scott. Yeah, so it's kind of decision time, right? I mean, yes, it's always been funny that somebody runs this bill, and yes, every year the ski industry comes in and screams and hollers, and we don't pass anything because of the political pressure. But, you know, who are we going to listen to? Is one special interest, or are we going to do the right thing? His bill this year initially aimed to keep Colorado on daylight saving time year-round. Now he wants to put it to voters. Should we lock the clock on daylight saving time for later sunsets or on standard time for earlier sunrises? The law would only take effect, though, if the federal government also acts. There's a bipartisan bill in the U.S. Congress that has President Trump's support. It would lock states into daylight saving time or standard time permanently. Scott says Coloradans should decide between those two options now, just in case. That the only thing we can do is go ask the voters, and if they approve it, then when the federal government makes the change, then we would be locked in. Scott gives his bill a 50-50 chance of success in the legislature. Still, he's rushing ahead. That's our most precious commodity, right, is time. We only have so much. Oregon and Washington have already passed similar bills. 
The European Union's moving even faster. They'll stop changing clocks in 2021. I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News. And Andy's in our studio now because the response to this story has been swift and strong. Hi, Andy. Hello. Uh, first off, this year's daylight saving bill. I mean, it really sounds like it's in flux. That's right. So it was supposed to be heard in a committee yesterday, but Senator Scott decided to delay it. He's, he texted me this morning. I'm working with both sides for a compromise. We'll see how that works out. Uh, what he wants to do now is to send it to the voters and ask them, hey, listen, if we were to stop the clocks, do you want to do permanent daylight saving time with those longer evenings or mm. do you want to do permanent standard time with those brighter mornings? Other states are also taking steps in case the federal government gets rid of the time change nationally. Yeah, I was really surprised to hear that just in the last couple of years, you've had Washington, Oregon, Tennessee, Delaware and Maine all passing these kind of similar laws declaring that they are interested in daylight saving time. And what really struck me about that was that all of them have this in common. They say, we want the daylight time. We want the long evenings in the summer. And so, you know, daylight saving time was really only introduced as a concept, you know, 100 years ago. And before that, we had standard time. And over that course of time, people have decided, okay, we do like the long summer evenings. So, you know, maybe we'll come out of this having shifted forward an hour and embracing year-round what used to be just a seasonal concept. Well, the reaction indeed has been strong to your story online, on social media, about whether the time change is a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, so we've heard three different big responses. Some people absolutely, you know, they hate the change. They're all about daylight saving time. Some people hate the change, but they like the other mode. They, they don't want to wake up in the pitch black in the winter. And then some people... You know, they, they think we got it right. We're getting the both best of both worlds. We oh. don't just mind kind of being sleepy for a day or two. Then, you know, just keep it the way it is. I like getting up when it's dark out. I, 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 I hate to say it. I would do it year round. Not to reveal my bias, but I don't mind that either. <laughs> I think you put it as beating the sun. You know, it's like if you're going to get up early, you might feel like you've beat the sun. Yeah, that's okay. right. Uh, we do not bring that to bear in our reporting, however. CPR's Andrew Kenny answering a Colorado Wonders question about daylight saving time. Is there something you wonder about in Colorado? You can send your questions to cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. All right, songs from the Underground Railroad, Spirituals, Ragtime, all featured in a new stage production in Metro Denver. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf explains how it highlights the immense musical contributions of African Americans. Hold on, hold on, keep your hand on that plow. And hold on. Irvia P. Davis is rehearsing the song Hold On. She says it feels amazing to sing the music of her ancestors. Because it tells a story about where we came from, how we came here, and how we had to try to survive. And music is something that unites all of us and binds all of us, and it's something that's very, very, very important. Noah said you done lost your track. Can't plow straight and keep a looking back. Keep your hand on that plow 
and hold on. Davis is part of a group of performers digging into a robust musical archive for a new show called The History of African American Music, co-produced by Colorado Black Arts Festival and Denver-based Source Theater Company. It's actually a trilogy, and this first installment spans the 1600s to the early 1900s, from music brought to America by enslaved Africans to prohibition. So it starts in Africa, and you listen to some of the traditional ritual songs. That's Source Theater co-founder Jimmy Walker, who did all the research for the show. Walker says this isn't a play with characters whose stories you follow, that the music is the driver with a narrator to give audiences some of the historical context, as well as some of the context on why this music is so important. The highest and deepest expression of beauty and suffering, it is the testimony that chronicles our life experience. Music is created mostly of pain and suffering, even when it resonates with joy. Walker explains that when Africans were brought to America, they spoke different languages. They had different religious backgrounds and different rituals. But the one thing that was connecting for all of them was music and rhythm. The show also features work songs, lullabies, and spirituals, songs that spoke to the slavery experience. Wait in the water. Walker says he was surprised to learn about the functionality of music-like spirituals. It was a technology for their survival, for their perseverance. It kept them going. They used it as a system to communicate. They translated that language into a coded language and how they would code music to uh, escape through the Underground Railroad and things like that. The show closes with ragtime music, known for its syncopation. Colorado Black Arts Festival Executive Director Florence Ayres says she wanted to do something on this musical history for a long time. She hopes younger audiences will see the connection between this music and the music they listen to today. I just want our kids, our youth, to understand where it came from. I want to give them a sense of pride, a sense of self-esteem, that their forebears created this music. Well, you better run, better run, better run. Source Theater's Jimmy Walker says they want people to learn about these connections, but they also want the show to be entertaining. One of the things I didn't want to do with the show was kind of beat people over the head with a real educational experience. And so trying to glide them through the music in a very fundamental way so that they can see, wow, I didn't know that that existed. The next two installments will cover genres like jazz, the blues, modern gospel, and R&B showing how the origins of what's considered to be American music, even rock and roll and country, can all be traced back to these influences. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. You can see the first installments of The History of African American Music Friday at the Broomfield Auditorium. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a row across the Atlantic. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. Senator Michael Bennett is going all in in New Hampshire. He staked his presidential campaign on a February surprise, a strong showing at the first in the nation primary. I'm going to spend a lot of time here, and the, and the way I'm going to win it is by being in living room after living room after living room after living room. 
I'm Caitlin Kim with CPR News. As voters in New Hampshire take to the polls, we'll be on the ground to hear how Bennett is faring and how he stacks up to the other Democratic presidential contenders. Tune in to CPR News or CPR.org. Being wounded by an anti-tank grenade in Iraq was tough, but rowing 3,000 miles across the Atlantic was even more of a challenge. All right, this is Evan Stratton recording my day seven uh, weekly questions. Um, I guess I'll start with my low, the low for the week. Um, It's definitely just been missing family, uh, specifically just missing my son Beckham. I've called home a few times, talked to my mom and my wife, and he's just doing fun stuff like walking with a walker and things like that. And um, while it makes you really happy, it you know, makes it really hard, makes me really sad because I really miss him. So that is Denver native and Marine veteran Evan Stratton from a video diary he kept. The Purple Heart recipient just got home after spending 50 days, 11 hours and 35 minutes rowing with three other vets from the Canary Islands to Antigua. They did this to bring attention to veterans' mental health. And Evan, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You had a bit of a physical disability going into this. When you were injured in Iraq, you lost uh, much of the movement in one arm. How did that affect your ability to row? Yeah, you know, um, nerves can be fickle things. And uh, luckily, I healed up over time. You know, I spent a couple years after that injury, my spinal spinal accessory nerve was severed. So you get limited movement there. But over time, it heals up. So I got about 85, 90% of that back. And luckily, it didn't affect me on the road too much. You know, you get everything hurts, you find out on the row. So (laughs) (laughs) everything hurts. (laughs) Yeah, not specifically one thing. Have your arms recovered? Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good now. Uh, I still wake up in the morning. My hand is so stiff. You get what's called trigger finger. So my hand, my fingers won't close all the way. So it'll take a little while to do some hand exercises. But legs, I can walk again. I'm used to land. So things are pretty good. Yeah, used to land. I mean, I've spent just a few hours on a boat, gotten off, and still felt like I was moving on the water. How long did that So the kind of vertigo thing probably wore off about 36 hours later. But then what you don't really realize is that you atrophy. You're either sitting in a rowing position or you're laying down for 50 days. So when you get back, everything's atrophied. So your lower back, your hips, your thighs, your uh, calves are so tight. I was like an old man in a walker. I couldn't walk like unassisted for a couple days. Oh, that's so interesting. In other words, your upper body strength is tremendous. I'm guessing your arms were great, but everything else has been sedentary. Oh yeah, yeah, just the walking. I mean, you use your legs a lot, quite a bit in the in the drive for the row, but it's just like your calves atrophy. And you're, you're just not walking, so you're just using these muscles you haven't really exercised. Okay, you called your team Fight or Die, that's spelled O-A-R, oh, or, yeah. um, and this was actually part of a race, the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were the only American team, the only all-veteran team, How was the idea for this born in landlocked Denver? Yeah, Ocean Row in USA, Denver, Colorado. (laughs) Um, It was actually set out in 2018 by a couple trailblazers. So there's a group of American veterans last year that rode and they set up Fight or Die as a nonprofit. So they were the very first U.S. veteran team to ever go to the Talisker Whiskey Land Challenge and complete it. So they're kind of the trailblazers. And they said this this message and the idea of, you know, veterans going out and doing hard things is important. We need to keep doing it. So they 
set it why, up. Why do you think they said that? We need to keep doing it, the, these tough things. Yeah, you know, it's it's veterans are trying to connect with veterans in all sorts of different ways these days. I don't think PTSD, TBI, mental health is it's not a hidden issue anymore. I think civilians and veterans are alike are aware of the issues that veterans are facing. Uh-huh. And there's a whole lot of different ways to approach it. What we wanted to do is say, hey, light that spark. Life doesn't end after the military. So you do this epic things for four to 20 years of your life when you're young. But then you get out and then what? You have a whole lot of years left to live. And all veterans go through this moment where they have to re-find themselves. They have to look in the mirror and say, who am I going to be? And it's quite possible that an injury forces you out of the military earlier than you foresaw. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I think that's what drew me to this is that injury for me was not final. And I realized that you can overcome injury and it's not definitive. Just like being in the military is not definitive. There's more life to live. So when you get out of the military, you can't just stay in this military mindset. Go out and do big things. Row an ocean. Why Row not? Row an ocean <laughs> is one way to do it. Okay. So the, the idea had been born previously. And uh, yep. my understanding is that the members of your team We're all over the country, Alaska, Montana, Texas, and you in Colorado. How do you become a cohesive rowing team with everyone in disparate places? Um, That's where being in the military and being veterans, really, we have the advantage. You don't pick who you go to war with. You have to make it work with the guys that you have and the resources you have. So where most people that go to the uh, race are like childhood friends, their siblings, their, you know, father, son teams, mother, daughter teams. Uh We had to, you know, put this thing together, not knowing each other. But that's the advantage of being a veteran. I don't think... Any other group, you could find four strangers and put them in a boat in Roan Ocean like veterans. So you all trained individually? Yep. So there's a lot of training, just physical training yep. individually. But there's quite a bit that goes into this race. You know, we spent seven months of preparing, and that's a lot of different things are going on. You have to make sure you have the right equipment, that you're making certain milestones, that you're giving the race certain documentation. We went down to Mobile, Alabama for three weeks on the boat and retrofitted the boat, made sure we had everything we had, got all the supplies we needed, and trained day in and day out on that boat rowing. That boat, I want you to describe it. It was called Wooby. The Wooby. The yep. Whoopie. Okay. Yep. That's not a name that inspires fear no, or, or no. Con- confidence. It did have a shark face painted on the bow. Yep. So the Whoopie is actually a piece of military equipment. It's a poncho liner. It's a little soft blanket. And it's like one of those only comforts you have when you're out in the field or you're on deployment. So the boat is our comfort for the row. Oh, I see. You named the boat. After a whoopee, after yep. that thing that kind of cloaks you totally when you're in the battlefield. Exactly. So and, Yeah, and describe the boat because it sounds like there wasn't a lot of room to move. No, the boat is 28 feet long. And so that's just enough for six, you know, four, six foot tall people, you know, the kind of max height to get on this boat. There's a bow cabin and aft cabin. The cabins are just big enough to where you wouldn't be able to get two people in there comfortably. So they're just big enough to have one person in there plus equipment. Um, there's two rowing stations. So you have two rowers on, two rowers resting for 24 hours a day. So in total, you would row 12 hours a day. And then you and that, you know, cabin mate you have just switch positions. So while I'm rowing, my cabin mate is resting and then vice versa. Did you sleep much? As much as you can. <laughs> um, you have about two hours of rest. So in that rest period, you're eating food, you're kind of cleaning yourself, you're doing whatever boat maintenance may need to happen at that time. So I'd say, you know, the most you would ever get rest-wise is an hour and a half. And it's difficult to sleep on that boat. You could hear just in that video diary, the water and the wind that comes through the boat just while I'm recording on my phone. That's so, right. I watched a lot of your videos and they have this constant... <sighs> 
Oh yeah, and it gets worse than rowing that. sound. I it mean, sounds it, like someone when it waves, like a good wave hits that boat. It sounds like someone's just taking a sledgehammer to the boat, and you're like, "Man, is this thing gonna come apart?" <laughs> you know, difficult to sleep. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Purple Heart recipient and Marine veteran Evan Stratton, who, with the team of other vets, rode the Atlantic Ocean 50 days, 11 hours, 35 minutes rowing from the Canary Islands to Antigua. So does that mean for 50 days you you never left that boat? Exactly. Just we never. never left you, that you didn't boat. go onto another craft nope. for a cocktail No other boats gave us assistance. <laughs> nope. Yeah, everything has to be 100% self-sustained on that boat. So if you take assistance of any kind from anybody or anything, you're disqualified. So all of our food was brought on the boat. We have a water maker that desalinates the water. So we have fresh drinking water. You go to the bathroom on that boat. You sleep on that boat. You do not leave that boat for that entire time. You go to the bathroom on the boat, but there's not a head. Nope. There's a five-gallon bucket. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> Just lovely. Yep. How's your mental health? I'd like to talk a little bit about yeah. um, that aspect of it, because the, the, the trajectory, the trek that you took was all about raising awareness of veterans' mental health. What, what if anything, did you struggle with after your injury? So I like to say I had a triple injury. I was not only physically injured from the grenade, um, I had a traumatic brain injury from the grenade blasts, and I also lost my best friend uh, and gunner, Brandon Lada, in that attack. I was 19 years old when that happened. I don't think you really have the emotional capacity to process that. And to this day, you know, I still reprocess that, but it really came to a head for me when I was about 22 years old. I'd left the military and I really had to come face to face with two big questions. One, who am I going to be now that I'm not in the military? And two, the emotional emotional processing of losing my friend. You, he said his name was Brandon. Brandon T. Lott of, uh, you know, New Braunfels, Texas. Yep. How often did you think of Brandon during the role? I think of him daily. He's never left me. He um, is instrumental in keeping me alive. He basically sacrificed himself. So um, he repelled the assault when those grenades came in for just long enough for the rest of our team to kind of react to it. So I owe my life to him. Was there guilt associated with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you lose somebody and you, you there's so much to it. One, you watch them die, which is traumatic. Two, you want to, you have to figure out how do you live your life when someone has that amount of sacrifice for you. And that's what I really struggled with is, you know, I'm still here. He's not. How it's do not I do fair. right by him? Yeah, it's not fair. Exactly. And then that's how I kind of turned the corner with things. You know, I kind of had a breakthrough moment. I was going to therapy and I was doing different things to kind of help process that stuff. And I was like, well, the best thing I can do is live an absolutely incredible life to honor that sacrifice. And that's kind of what led to the row is it's the 10 year anniversary of his um, sacrifice is the 10 year anniversary of my injury. And so what better way to get out there and, you know, carry on his legacy and to, you know, prove to myself and others that injury isn't final, that it's mental health is not the end point. There's no one stop solution, but it is a journey, just like rowing the ocean. You have to leave the safe harbor and you have to row your own personal oceans in order to go out and do big things. But it's man, it's worth it. It's so poetic, Evan. Thank you. You said earlier that there's just more talk about mental health. There's more talk about PTSD and TBI, traumatic brain injury. But I have also heard that the military culture makes it difficult to say I'm struggling, especially during battle, mm -hmm. in the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Is that changing fast enough? You know, I think there's a difference between services on active duty and then services once you leave the military. Uh -huh. um, I think... 
there's been great, great strides on the active duty side. And, you know, it's been a little while since I've been there. I think it's when I was in the active duty side, I remember it was still kind of a question of like, ah, how do we deal with this? Is it really an issue or not? I think we now know it is absolutely an issue and the service is absolutely, it needs to be addressed early and often, even on the active duty side. And it's all about readiness. You know, you need to have a force and readiness to carry out the mission. And mental health is a part of that conversation now. Baking that in, if you will. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Okay. Yep. Back to the row here. Uh, how was the weather? You, you said that when things got windy, it sounded like the boat was being hit by a sledgehammer. What was the sort of sketchiest it got? So you got, we had everything. We had everything from big waves and high winds to flat, calm, bright, sunny, no, cloudless sky days. What does a big wind look like in a boat that small? So we had about 30 knot winds when we took off from Antigua. So what we, um, it's a UK race. So it's all, you know, uh, British driven. So as they put it, it's going to be a bit punchy. <laughs> it's going to be a bit punchy. So we had a bit of a punchy start <laughs> as we, uh, as we left La Gomera. And you know, the wind and the waves are good things. You want those things because they help you go faster. Really? Yeah. So the boat itself, you can go, let's say about, you know, one to two and a half miles per hour, just rowing on flat conditions. Well, you get some wind and some waves. Now you're doing an average speed of five to six miles per hour. Assuming that they're in your favor. Assuming they're in your favor. And that's the trick is they're always kind of shifting on you and you got to, you know, navigate that. That's part of the race. Um, you try to keep them at your back. So it's pushing you west. You know, that's where you want to go. You want to go west. Um, we had everything though. So I think probably the the hairiest we got were about 45 foot waves and 45 feet. Yeah. And during the so day, they, they look like walls to you. It looks like the whole, like, you know, you don't have earth here, but I'm going to say when you're standing out there, just imagine like everything you can see just starts swelling up above your head. And the next thing you know, you can't see anything cause you're in a valley and you're just riding up the wave <sighs> and it's, uh, <laughs> It's a, it's a gut-wrenching, exciting, exhilarating feeling, you know, and you, you kind of get used to it. And now you surf them, though, so you're trying to pull at the top of the wave so the nose goes over. So now you're picking up like 10, 15 knots going down the waves. And that's what kind of makes it exciting is you're sitting with your row partner and you're like, all right, let's get it. Let's get these waves. Are you addicted to adrenaline? I would not say I'm like an adrenaline seeker. I've definitely had my fair share of it. Um you, you learn though, you know, you weigh risk with preparation and you take on big things and there's always an element of risk to some big things to do, but you know, you, you negate those risks through preparation and, you know, working hard at it. Would you row across an ocean again? Absolutely. Um, I think it was an incredible experience. I'd love to share that experience with people that I'm close with. You know, there's nowhere you can go on this earth and become unplugged the way I was unplugged. You can go camping for a week, but that's only for a week. (laughs) Imagine two months where there's no work demands, there's no life demands, there's no texts, there's no emails, there's no calls. You just get reconnected with nature. You get the front row seat to the sunrise and the sunset every day. You get a billion stars every night. You can't get that anywhere else. The front row Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, Well well done, Evan. Thank you. Slipping the puns. Purple Heart recipient Evan Stratton rode across the Atlantic Ocean with three other veterans on Team Fight or Die to bring attention to veterans' mental health needs. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. You rode to the east, you rode to the west, sure, oh, it finds. You rode to the east, you rode to the west. Sure, 
Valentine's Day is Friday. Long-stemmed roses may come to mind. Boxed chocolates may be perfume. Well, Boulder perfumer Don Spencer Hurwitz won an international award for her scent, Colorado. She spoke with me in July from her workshop about the art of perfume. Don, it occurs to me that one challenge of making a perfume about Colorado is that it not wind up smelling like pine salt. <laughs> yes, that is definitely the number one challenge when designing something that you want to evoke a true pine grove or pine forest using aromatics that have been distilled. Um, to not have it smell like pine salt or something medicinal, especially because pine salt is a really big thing in the American sort of palette of scents that they would know. So how did you avoid that? So I was really trying to evoke the entirety of walking through a Colorado meadow into the forest. And because there are grasses and fresh air and other deciduous trees, I really focused on the contrast and complement of those elements next to the Colorado blue spruce that I used and other pine kind of notes. Beyond notes, tell us what the actual ingredients are to the extent that you can, and it's not a trade secret. Oh, sure. (laughs) Well, it would take a long time to give you the entire formula if I were to do so. It's about three pages long. But some of the main notes were ponderosa pine bark and Colorado blue spruce, uh, something called leaf alcohol, which is something that occurs in grasses and all kinds of deciduous leaves. Um, So that gives you a nice fresh green smell. And then there's lemon essential oil and lemon essence, which comes from distilled lemon juice, which gives you something wonderfully fresh and bright like the atmosphere near the pine grove, but in a contrast to that pine. How much of this was inspired by the area immediately around you in Boulder? A lot of it actually I really was thinking very much about the Chautauqua area here in Boulder and the Flatirons and how you get that wonderful walk up to the Flatirons, but it's through the fields and it's through a sort of um, open space and it's very atmospheric and there's a meadow with flowers. And then you go up into the mountain and start to smell those trees. So this scent, based on Colorado, uh, won you a golden pear. This is at the 6th Annual Art and Olfaction Awards, given out in Amsterdam. A golden pear. Did you take home a trophy? I did. There is a golden pear trophy here in my studio. (laughs) I wonder why it's called a golden pear. Is that a particularly aromatic fruit? Yeah, I think it's one of those aromatics, or it's a fruit that most perfumers really love because it's very delicate and quite tricky, actually, to do accurately. You talked about the long list of ingredients that actually went into this Colorado fragrance. How much trial and error did you have to do uh, to kind of set that list? Well, the way that I work is generally I get an idea and I pull out absolutely every aromatic I can think of that could possibly be a part of it. And then I start to smell all those pieces and find harmonies and do an editing process And even with editing, it turned out to be, you know, a three-page design, very complex design. You know, something that didn't make it into the design was actually vanilla. That just seemed like gilding the lily. 
I often hear, and I'm not sure if this is true, that perfumes, eau de toilettes, respond differently to different people's body chemistries. And this is why a particular perfume might smell different on me than it would you. I I wonder if that's true, first of all. And if so, if you've tried Colorado and if you like it when you wear it. It is true. Definitely body temperature and pH and your hormone balance, your diet, all of these things come out in your skin and affect the way um, a fragrance would work on your skin. And so not every fragrance is going to work on every person. So some things sing and some things are flat or even sometimes get sour or bitter or something. And yeah, I think that because there's this movement or storytelling in the fragrance design that takes you from something airy and fresh and even a little citrusy green into something very woody and even a little bit sweet and ambery rich, there's something in there for everyone. So I do think that most of the people who have tried out um, Colorado on their skin have loved how it's performed. Does that include you? Does that include me? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, it's been so fascinating as you describe this, almost like scent as a journey. But I, I don't think of scent as a place with a point A and a point B. I think of it as like a, a stationary unchanging thing. I guess that's just not the right way to look at it. Oh, absolutely not. Especially with artisan perfumery, which is what I engage in. From the very beginning, I've been interested in storytelling through aromatics and through wearing perfume. So you might think of it more like a song where it has a starting point and you move into it and you can groove with it. And then at some point it ends. And if you want to enjoy it again, you reapply and you sort of hear the aromatic song again. And is it how it's interacting with the air that gives it that kind of arc? Well, it's in the design, really. So aromatic molecules that are used for perfume making all have a different kind of weight and volatility. So the very introduction, the first spray, if you will, or after applying, those parts are very volatile. And so they come up and they give you a rush and you you get into the fragrance, but then they burn off very quickly. And so as you move through the fragrance or you go through the story, it's taking you also through the volatility layers into the deepest, most tenacious parts. And that's what's called the dry down. And that's the sort of like culmination of the story. Well, Don, thank you for speaking with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. And you, you make me a regret that radio can't convey scent. <laughs> well, you, that means you'll just have to come and visit me and smell. I have yet to visit, but it's still on my list. Don Spencer Hurwitz there of Boulder speaking with me in July. She won an award for her scent, Colorado. She developed it for a company called American Perfumer in Louisville, Kentucky. Okay, whether the idea of Valentine's Day fills you with anticipation or dread, the Colorado Symphony will perform music to accompany the holiday of love. Their show's called A Symphonic Valentine. Colorado Symphony playing The Garland Waltz from Sleeping Beauty. 
Other selections at their Valentine's show Friday include excerpts from Bizet's Carmen and vocal performances by soprano Laquita Mitchell. Mitchell has led performances at opera houses in San Francisco and New York City, among many others. She's also a woman of color, and in this interview from the San Francisco Opera, she recalls being a student and seeing a performer who looked like her. I was 14 years old, and I had the opportunity to meet a fabulous singer by the name of Jessie Norman. At that time, I had no idea who she was, and it was great. I got to meet this woman. She was singing at the Metropolitan Opera House, which is directly across the street from my high school. And when I saw Ms. Norman step on stage, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, this is, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It just opened up a whole new world for me. And we'll go out with a piece sung by Mitchell from Faust by Charles Gounod. Mitchell will be the featured soloist at the Colorado Symphony's concert February 14th, a symphonic valentine. That's Colorado Matters for today. We'll be your Valentine. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.